0: hi everyone welcome back to the podcast so super excited to announce that we have zane jafar of zane ventures here and partner at bluefield capital so hi zane could you share a bit about the lessons and mistakes you learned while building vungle
1: you know to build a company with a the size of scale and exit that vungle had which was a 780 million dollar acquisition for blackstone it took although it sounds like an overnight success it really took seven, eight years of hard work and lots and lots of failures. And the story actually begins far before Vungle, where I must have come up with at least five, six different startup ideas and startups I tried to get off the ground. And all of them were very difficult and were failed. I actually, at one point, as I was graduating university, during the credit crunch of the great financial crisis, I thought, this entrepreneurship stuff just isn't meant for me. You know it's so hard, and I keep failing. And my parents are pressuring me to get a job. First, they forced me to get an education. Now they're you know telling me to get a job. And um, to my, uh, I say good luck and bad luck. I applied to all the big firms, you know, the consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain and Goldman Sachs and all the all all the big companies that you want to apply for. And I got rejected. And so I had no choice but to uh, find a startup. And uh, I found a, a startup that who became my co-founder eventually. I joined this other startup with a guy called Jack. And uh, I did that whilst doing a part-time masters and I wasn't really taking a salary. There was no clear arrangement of what equity I would get. And when you say to people you're running a startup or you're joining a startup, it's basically code word for I'm unemployed. I can't get a job. And that's how things were back in those days. And so um, at that point, that company also failed. And there I am finishing my uh, master's degree and going back to my parents and back to my friends and family and very embarrassed. Yeah, that startup you were joking about, which you you were saying I'm unemployed, it's true, I, I am. But we just kept persevering and eventually we made it. And I think the lesson here is that you're gonna get to points where you just feel like it's time to quit. I can't do this anymore. And success happens usually after the point where it's obvious you should quit. Success doesn't just suddenly appear when you're starting to get gold feet. Success comes after you are pretty much ready to throw in the towel and you're like, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to take one more swing. And sometimes all you need is one big swing or one big lucky event to uh, change your life.
0: It's really great to hear how you persevered and how Vung- I also appreciate you sharing a bit about Vangal as well. And so my next question is actually, what was the scrappiest thing that you did while building Vangal?
1: The scrappiest thing was we were trying to get funding and here we are, me, I'm an Indian kid living in the UK and I've got my co-founder Jack, who's got a very strong British accent, and in the UK, it was very hard to raise funding. People there wanted to see a profitable business plan. It felt at times like if you satisfy all the things investors want, you don't need their money. And it was so hard in the UK. People didn't believe in uh, making losses and then eventually making revenue and, and and building a big company. So we tried to apply to the US and we tried to get the interest of US investors. And we heard about this incubator called AngelPad, which is very similar to Y Combinator. It's a startup accelerator where you go for three months, you get a little bit of money, you give some equity away and you have a demo day. And so we really wanted to get into this incubator. And we read that there was only one spot left. We're reading TechCrunch and we thought to ourselves, okay, we really need to get the attention of this incubator because there are apparently thousands of applications for this last spot. And we really need this. The Americans might understand our mentality, and so we did some research and we quickly discovered, Ah, oh, okay, one of the guys who, who is the partner at the incubator is a guy called Gokul Rajaram, this guy who, I think he graduated from IIT and had a really good career and was known as the guy that pretty much invented Google ads. And he then sold his startup to Facebook pre-IPO and was now running ads at Facebook and we thought this is a guy we really need to get the attention of. And so we figured out, let's make a video and let's target Goku. So me and my co-founder took a, a camera, we started recording a video and the video went something like this. Hey Gokul, we've got your attention. Please take a chance on us. I know we're we we don't you know we're not Americans and I know this incubator is mainly for Americans and ex-Googlers, but we really, really want to take a, a shot at this. And um, we tried to get that video to go viral. And so we started hacking around with LinkedIn and we figured out, oh, there is a way to actually target his first degree connections. We could even filter down to people he's worked with and people who are executive level. And so we created this ad campaign. It cost us literally nothing because we paid per click. So we were guaranteed anyone that clicks this ad is someone he knows. And we were able to get this ad up with a picture of his face. And it was like, Gokul needs help. Urgent message, please click this. So people are thinking, what's happened? Is Goku being kidnapped or something by ISIS? So they click on this ad and there's a landing page of me and my co-founder doing the pitch. And that video went viral, got his attention. We eventually got a call and uh, the call was, hey, take that video down right now. You're causing a lot of problems for me. And um, that helped us stand out from the crowd We continued to make more videos like this to harass the other partners at AngelPad because we knew this is how to get their attention. And eventually they said to us, you guys aren't going to leave us alone, are you? Okay. You know, we've had so many applications. We've had people from Harvard, MIT, people from Google, Facebook, people that are already in the US. You guys, we don't know which university you came from. We can barely understand you because you've got thick British accents and you don't work at Google or Facebook or anything. So get on the next plane to the US And if you want the spot, you've got to be here in 48 hours and sign the paperwork. That was it. We just packed the bags and we jumped on a plane and that was scrappy as hell. You know, that's, we we didn't look back after that.
0: Yeah, that was a really scrappy way that you shared of how to get the attention of a partner at AngelPad. So what does it take to build a unicorn like Vangal? Like how did that all come about and... What are your thoughts now that you've exited from Wang to Blackstone?
1: I think we need to break that question down. And I think the real meat of this question is the word unicorn. If you were listening to a podcast in 2021, a unicorn would have very different feelings than users or viewers who are listening to it today in 2023 or later. Unicorns were very common in 2021. When we sold our company in 2019, almost a unicorn, Uh, they were slightly less common, but... The way value was derived was very difficult to get your head around. There were startups that had very little revenue and they were suddenly valued at unicorn status. We, on the other hand, built a business in an industry that was hated by investors. Investors hated advertising technology, disliked gaming technology, and we were basically in the middle of that. We were doing video ads inside of games. We were powering that technology. And so we we would have revenue that would be 10 times more than other companies that were unicorns, but our revenue multiples were very low. We got the business to, million in revenue, and we took the business to almost $100 million in EBITDA, right? And we barely scratched the unicorn valuation. But the year after that, 2020 and 2021, suddenly everyone's a unicorn. You hit a $10 million run rate and you're valued at, you know, $500 million and you reach $50 million, you're suddenly a unicorn. And that has completely changed today. And we've glamorized unicorns so much. And it's created really bad behavior with how founders and CEOs run their company. The idea was that you raise a bunch of venture capital, you keep spending, 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 and eventually the next investor, the greater fool, will pay a higher and higher valuation. As a founder or CEO, you'll make your money when you sell some secondary at a unicorn valuation. The founder's walking out with $50 million, $100 million, still retaining a large share of the company. Eventually, though, the party stops. Eventually, interest rates can't stay low forever. People peek under the business and realize, hold on. The unit economics suck. This company barely has product market fit, and it's a unicorn. Today, if you're looking at a unicorn back as it was in 2021, those companies are now going through rounds and rounds of layoffs. They have cap tables that are extremely messy. And this is the thing. We glamorized these companies, and now these companies are in pain, and no one cares about them. Many of these companies are going bankrupt today. So I think it's really interesting when, you know, we glamorize the word unicorn, uh, a lot needs to go into that. Ultimately, the way I looked at it when I ran Vongo was, look, I can't count on a ludicrous, insane revenue multiple. I need to focus on EBITDA because I'm not going to get the same revenue multiple that these SaaS companies are getting. So what made me sleep at nighttime was knowing I had a business that was a cash machine. It was printing EBITDA. Our cash balance was growing. And at the end of the day, worst case, there's value here because there's cash in the bank and we're profitable. I literally used to just think if everything collapsed tomorrow, whatever sky-high valuations may exist, we know we're worth at least the cash in the bank. And that makes me proud because that cash in the bank was far more than we had raised, you know, we had well over hundred million dollars in the bank and we'd only raised 25 million. So I knew worst case we would pay 25 back to the investors and all of us here would at least have $75 million to share. Fortunately for us, you know, the exit was 780, uh, but you know, I I would probably have been very, um, in a very different position if uh, investors didn't like the company that we were building at the time. It turned out that the company that we were building was very valuable though, to the likes of Blackstone and other private equity firms.
0: Yeah, so you made a really great point about building a company that investors like. So how does one go about building such a company?
1: We build a company investors like, yes, you may make a lot of money in the short term on paper. It's hard to turn it into real cash, especially in this environment. But I'm fundamentally against building a company that investors will like. And I can tell you the playbook. I am a venture capitalist today. I can tell you what investors like but i want to just start by focusing on what you should do before what you shouldn't do but if you want to build a company investors like I'll, I'll tell you how that's done i think you should build a company customers like you should not think about investors at all think about customers when i was uh, building Vungle, investors did not like the idea of an ad tech company in gaming and we didn't care about that all we cared about was we've got customers here who are willing to give us pre-orders That's enough product market fit. We had hundreds of thousands of dollars in pre-orders before we even built the product. And so when we went out to raise, it was really, look, we've got customers here. And yes, it may not be a software company um, or SaaS revenues, but our customers love us and our revenues are growing. And investors have never seen that type of revenue growth before. Our revenue was explosive. First year, 850,000. Second year, 15 million. Third year, 56 million. All the way to 400 million, right? But build a company that your customers love and scratch a problem or cure a problem that is like cancer for them. Don't solve a nice to have, solve a problem they cannot live without. A problem where if your company didn't exist anymore, your customers would be in trouble, become essential to what they do. So when you're starting a company, my advice would be yes, you need to position it or whatever. But ultimately, long-term and sustainable, you have to focus on what the customers want. Now, I'm going to go to the second part. Here's what investors love. Investors love a strong founder with a powerful vision. They really like a visual, easy-to-understand slide deck. They love vanity metrics. Any metrics that go up and to the right, obviously, EBITDA would be the best, failing that net revenue, failing that gross revenue, failing that number of users. But whatever metrics are growing in an exponential manner, right? You could, if you've got that in some way in your business and you make that the second page of your deck, that's the most powerful deck possible. So investors love that. Investors also love what's hot right now in the market. Uh, A year ago, it was cryptocurrency. Today it's artificial general intelligence and generative AI. Who knows what it will be next year and the year after. Things come in and out of fashion. And when you start to see other companies raise a lot of money. Investors get attracted to that because now they're seeing, look when crypto was getting really hot. Coinbase suddenly was a, a Decacon, OpenSea, Binance, FTX. There were um, 100 different crypto exchanges and marketplaces that had a unicorn valuation back in 2021. So that space was very hot. And if you're in a space that's very hot, most people shy away from talking about competitors. VCs don't necessarily think like that. What they think is, look, we're making a bet here, and the biggest concern we have is, can this be a big unicorn exit? Again, you know, it was very glamorized. Unicorn really means, in my view, like, is this a hundred x plus exit? If you're investing at a ten million dollar valuation, you need at least a multi billion dollar valuation to get a hundred x exit, and a lot of startups have a very small addressable market size. So investors love big addressable markets. And when you can show, here's a competitor that has raised a lot of money, or here's a company that was acquired, you suddenly tell investors that there is an opportunity here to get a valuation that is 100X plus. So that's the way that you can build a company that investors like. Don't shy away from that, lean into that. And there are other things too that investors like, I'll tell you one more thing. This is more along the back end of the process, Okay, many deals fall apart, especially when you're in a climate like today, where investors do a lot more thorough due diligence. When you're in the due diligence stage, if you have a slick data room together, and you have everything well organized, you know you have your employee contracts, you have your corporate, uh, you have your cap tables, your corporate charter, your financial statements, and everything neatly organized in the data room. That makes the process a lot easier, and investors really like that. Because usually they're taking a bet on an unseasoned founder who may not have much experience. There's a lot of corporate governance risk. And I'm telling you this as a venture capitalist. When I see a data room that's really well organized and easy to go through, that gives me confidence that, okay, these guys are well organized. This de-risks a certain part of the business for me. And it's a pleasant surprise. So that's another thing someone can do to make their business more investor friendly or a company that investors like
0: some really insightful advice and I think the biggest takeaways for me were to have a company that customers love and organization like be very thorough in your organization so my next question to you is so what is Zane Ventures your family office and VC arm and could you share a bit about like what's its investment thesis and what are some of the companies that you back? backed
1: Yeah. So Zane Ventures is my family office. A family office is basically um, an investment company that manages my money. And I've invested in so many different types of assets, whether that's stocks and bonds to private equity. And with most of my investments, I'm quite hands-off. I just appoint fund managers and folks that know how to manage different aspects of my wealth. Broadly speaking, you think about what your personal goals are. You think about what things you're passionate about, then you try to have your investment allocation work towards your goals. And then I identified there are two areas I'm really passionate about, and that's real estate and startups. So Zane Ventures has been focusing heavily on investing in startups and in real estate actively. And that's where I get hands on and I'll decide where to invest. Now, look, I've invested in lots of fund managers. I mean, a you have invested in Blackstone and many others who are really good at real estate, but I'll look at things that I really want to learn from and get involved with. On the startup side, I've invested in probably 50 different startups now. And an example of a, a great startup I would give you would be Boxable. So Boxable, the founders came to me and I was one of the first, you could say institutional or professional investors. They came to me with the idea that there's a shortage of houses globally. And we believe we've cracked the code to producing houses in a factory. And they went out and raised some money. And I was pretty much the first check in that external round. And they went and built a factory. And then they went and got a big pre-order from uh, the Department of Defense. And they just built so much IP and so much hype That they got a lot of orders and then they started to build out the factories and now they're shipping houses and they've got a huge factory in Las Vegas and now they valued it. The last valuation was around $3 billion. So, yeah, that was a huge return for uh, my family office, but it was also great to see a founder doing something that is addressing a core problem that humanity faces a lack of housing, especially at an affordable level. And the idea was really groundbreaking because it's like Tesla, you're producing these houses and then you're shipping them and you're literally shipping them on the back of a pickup truck. A box wall can be towed on the back of a pickup truck and sent anywhere and you don't need police escorts. You don't need to get a lot of permits that you usually need when you're uh, shipping like a prefab modular home. These are actually foldable. So it's just a mind-blowing concept. It's like Lego. It, it brought back memories to me when I was a child playing Lego. I'm like, wow, there's a founder here who's actually building homes the way you build Lego, and you can actually stack these boxes. So they're called boxable, right? You can stack them to build like a multi-family apartment or a hotel, or like a you know a, a big single-family home, or you can just have like you know a five-six hundred square foot uh, room by itself as like a studio with a and it's fire resistant, it's wind resistant, it's Flood resistant, it's got so much, so much that's so disruptive. So that's an example of a company that we've invested in. We we love backing founders that have bold visions that want to change the world.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting company that you shared about Boxable. And I really love what they're doing as well. I, this is the first time I've heard of them. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing your, all your insights. And it was an honor and a pleasure to host you on the podcast today. So do share how the audience can get in touch with you and yeah, anything you could share on that front. Yeah,
1: you can um uh follow me on social media. Um, you know, my Twitter handle is Zane Jaffa Z-A-I-N-J-A-F-F-E-R. And uh, my family office website is Zane Z A I N Ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com. So Zane, hyphen ventures.com. And from there you can see uh, all the things we're up to.
0: So if you're listening to this podcast right now, I have an open opportunity to reach this audience. So if you want to reach college students and freshers interested in startups and venture capital, and just in terms of the demographics, the age of 18 to 22 is the highest age demographic in India and US are the two largest country demographics of listeners for this podcast. Email me at bizpodruby at gmail.com. So thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode and hope you've learned something new.